0: When cis people, when white people see people of color or queer people's stories, there's a tendency to be like, that's them, not me. But the truth is, if everybody was like, oh, that's me too, then we get to go deeper as individuals into our own story and kind of pick it apart. I want people to, like their compassion to have risen. You know what I'm saying? And not just for Queer and trans people, but for everybody, for themselves.
1: Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is D'Lo, a queer transgender Tamil Sri Lankan American actor, writer, comic, whose work ranges from stand-up comedy and solo theater to plays, films, short stories, and poetry. His acting credits include Looking, Transparent, Sense 8, Mr. Robot, and Issa Rae produced Minimum Wage. His solo show, To Tea or Not to Tea, premieres June 25th at the Kirk Douglas Theatre in Los Angeles. Together we talked about trans masculinity, what it's like being a trans man in a world dominated by toxic masculinity, what cisgender folks should never ever ask about being trans, who he makes his work for, what solo performers inspired him, how hip-hop was his ally, how he became politicized as a kid growing up in Lancaster, California, and what his secret superpower is as a comic.
0: My name is Dilo, I am queer, and I'm also transgender, transmasculine, and I am Tamil, Sri Lankan, American, and what else? I'm an artist. In Hollywood, they say actor, writer, comic, but I am a solo-based theater artist and stand-up and storyteller.
1: Great. Thanks so much for being on the show and taking time out to talk to me. You brought up a term I haven't been intimately familiar with, and that's transmasculine. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that and tell me what that means.
0: Yeah, so like when people say that they're transgender, typically they are like, I guess like in the olden days, of <laughs> I mean, you were still identifying as trans but on the binary spectrum, so like you were either a trans woman or a trans male. But I don't necessarily feel like a man, you know what I'm saying? But I'm not, But I, so I'm trans, but I'm more on the masculine side of that identity. A lot of people say like for non-binary folks who are sometimes identifying as trans as well, they'll say I'm non-binary and I like mask presenting or femme presenting or just non-binary. Some people are like, it just depends on the day, but that's what trans masculine means
1: to me. Cool. Thank you so much. And I apologize if I'm a little bit basic here. Uh, I appreciate you educating me. So you have this solo show that's opening June 25th at the Kirk Douglas Theater in L.A., and it's called To Tea or Not To Tea. Talk to me about that title, what it refers to, and how it relates to the life that you live.
0: To Tea or Not To Tea is the second in a trilogy. The first one was called Defunct, and it it tracked the journey with me and my mother. But the overarching question was, what do queer people do to move into queer adulthood? In a world where rites of passages aren't offered for queer people. And particularly in this, because I am of color, I, I say for QT BIPOC or Black Indigenous people of color. That that was the first one. This one, Titi or not titi, is about my journey with my father. And the overarching question is what does beautiful masculinity look like in a toxic masculine world? To Tea or not to Tea, it's a play. Clearly, it's Shakespeare. In my decision to take Tea, it was a life-changing decision, a life-affirming decision. And I am trying to share with people who are not trans and who are trans, or who are queer, anybody really, that the decision for any one individual to make life-affirming moves is personal. And it's usually well thought out or well-processed. Like it you can <laughs> just be there and thinking and thinking like, what does this mean for me? Should I do this? Should I not? What does this mean if I do? What does this mean if I don't? Do you get what I'm saying? I always say that there's no such thing as transitioned for me because we're all ever changing. For trans and non-binary people or queer people, sometimes these changes Im- involve medical procedures. Or medical care and so that even raises the stakes because there's not that much research done on transgender health care so any person who goes through this battery of musings and thoughts and problem solving and troubleshooting around their gender identity or their gender presentation is they're taking there's higher stakes and yet Sometimes it's I need this, otherwise, I know I'm not going to survive well in this world, you
1: know? Right. So I'm curious is to tea or not to tea a multi character show? Because in your earlier shows, you've taken it upon yourself to portray other characters, including your mother, a character you call Amashak. Could you talk to me a bit about performing your mother and performing femininity?
0: In this show, I don't do full character drag. Usually my solo shows prior to the, this trilogy was like me doing a multitude of characters and, and changing your costume and doing all of that stuff. This show does not do that, but I'm still, still all the scenes are full up of characters. The performance of femininity is something I learned after puberty because I knew that people were going to sniff me out as queer or gay or whatever. They had already been questions and people wondering. But I had pretty much been like a tomboy up until puberty. And then I knew that going into junior high, I couldn't go in looking like a dude. Like I knew that it was just gonna be like out of place. So I started growing out my hair and started doing all this stuff. And I used to study the way that people moved, like the way that women and femmes moved in the world and I try, and yes, of course, I wasn't like the best passing female. But thank God for hip hop because then I could I could just wear baggies and kick it with my friends, and nobody questioned anything because it was hip hop. But yeah, like that's that. I think that I always say that me having to watch people and learn how to behave and walk like a girl, quote unquote was like the first acting lessons
1: That's so interesting So I was reading a magazine feature on you in Out Magazine and it said you had transitioned from someone who was gender non-conforming to someone who passed as male Does that feel correct to you? And if it does, can you walk me through a little bit of that journey?
0: Yeah, I think that I was gender nonconforming from if I was supposed to match the sex that I was assigned, the gender that was assigned, that that is related to the sex that I was assigned at birth. So if I am a girl child and I am wearing boy clothes and I'm being perceived as a boy, except people know that I'm a girl, quote unquote, and I'm saying this in very basic terms, then that means that I'm a gender nonconforming child. In high school, I was passing as female, but probably not doing the best job at being like femme. But people knew that I was a girl. That's what they saw. They were like, oh, that's a girl. In college, slowly and slowly, I started going back to my boy self because there were other queer people and I could be freer and et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so then, even though I was not on testosterone, people more often than not, read me as male. Now, the minute that I would talk, then they would be like, oh, that's not a dude. So that kind of existence is gender nonconforming. And I was gender nonconforming up until my late 30s, meaning that I didn't start taking testosterone until later. And then when I started to pretty soon after that, with the voice dropping and other changes like, then I become more like what we say passing, even though some people don't like that we say that. But I was perceived and read as male. And so that's been, of course, less time on this planet as being perceived as male. So I still carry a lot of the things that a gender nonconforming person does. There's still like a very like conscious, there's consciousness over my body. You know what I'm saying? But I think that just slowly changes over time. But it's not like you can erase decades of your life being in one body. You know what I'm saying? Your mind and your muscles remember all of that. So I think that to a certain degree, I don't want to lose that because it keeps me in touch with other people who don't have necessarily the privilege that I do as passing as male or nor would they want to. But that life is going to be hard because I remember life was fucking hard. In the big cities, it's a lot different, you know what I'm saying? But still, bigotry is everywhere.
1: Thank you. That's such a great answer. So you've said, I'm tired of people of color stories being told by white folks. This was in reference to a documentary that was eventually made about you by a white person. What frustrates you about this phenomenon?
0: I have seen documentaries of people of color for forever. I mean, about people of color forever. And there's always a white documentarian who has been behind it. And what it does is that it doesn't allow for the story to live in its authentic context because somebody else is framing the story. So when Crescent, who did Performing Girl, approached me, I was like, I don't know, man. You're a white person, and I I don't know how I feel about that. And then she was like, "I really to do this, and this is what I want." And I actually got to shape what the story felt like, and I was grateful that she allowed for that. And I know that it was frustrating for her, but she understood the importance of it because she does her anti-racist work, and we did it, and it was really good, and it, it. it did what it needed to do. And it's still actually a really great teaching tool that people use in colleges and stuff like that. Now, when I see TV shows and stuff like that, things have changed, like people who have a concept will now call in, if they have a character that is something that is completely different, and we don't see a whole lot of that character, like we don't see a whole lot of characters like that in the media, then what has become standard in a couple of, like the mainstream studios is to have somebody who represents that community in the writer's room and this is like recent this is changes that has happened over the past five to eight years maybe more like five so there are people who are really trying to hit a level of what they feel is authentic storytelling by having the people in the room that that can make it be what it needs to be yeah I'm appreciative of that but in regards to trans representation and especially trans people of color, there are very few shows in general that have trans folks of color in them. And then on top of that, as an actor, I get auditions. I, I read the sides and I'm like, it's very clear when somebody is reaching. And sometimes it's like for big shows and you're just like, come on, this is so dumb. Does every trans story have to be about life or death? Even for me, like, Titi or not Titi, it's about existence, but it's me telling the story, and it is largely comedic. It's not a tragic trans story. It's a story about family and relationships and universal emotions, universal emotions that are felt on a universal level. But yeah, I think that sometimes it's do they have to be this sort of drama or this sort of tragedy or this sort of same coming out story or this sort of like I was in the wrong body type of thing. There's some trans people who don't feel like they were ever in the wrong body. They've just been dealing with the body that they've been given as well as they could until another option was there.
1: You've been on some high profile TV shows, including Transparent and Mr. Robot. What's that experience been like for you? Do you feel any undue burden? Like, okay, now I have a responsibility to sort of portray my identity and my community in a positive light.
0: Yeah, it's deep because the shows that I've been in, like the roles that I had weren't necessarily like that heavy. You know what I'm saying? But and so sometimes when I think about the game of the industry, I want to work in the industry all the time because financially it is way more lucrative than the theater but there are things that I desire as an actor is to be able to portray characters that are so real and so well developed in a fantastic amazing beautiful story in those situations I would I feel like it is important to be offered a, a moment to actually if something didn't sit right to be able to be like hey like I just you know this and sometimes that has happened there are times where i'll get like i said like audition sites where it's something that we all talk about in the transactor community it's like are like this shit is problematic do i do the audition first and then tell them or do i tell them and then do the audition and the truth is everybody wants the job regardless because it's money and so it's do the audition and then tell them later and then see whether or not anything can be done. And then sometimes it's like involving GLAD into the room and being like, hey, like, I just want you to know this is not the way you want to go about telling this story.
1: Right, of course. So this is my last white person question, and then we can move on. But for a segment of progressives who feel lost, what do you wish they would understand they should never ask when it comes to trans life and trans folks? With the understanding, of course, that Everyone's uniquely different and has different boundaries.
0: I think that the big one is don't ask anybody in the world what's underneath their clothes (laughs) or about their surgeries. Yeah, I have been asked so many questions like that. I'm like, what is this fascination with people's genitalia or like what is under their clothes? And why do you feel like you get the right to know? Like, do you get what I'm saying? So anyway. (laughs) but anyway i feel like that's like the first first out the gate and then second is a person can be a person you don't necessarily even need to make somebody's transness their thing you know i feel like white people like when they hear i'm from my parents are from sri lanka then it's suddenly oh i've been there or oh i want to go there or whatever and it's okay yeah but my people have been going through a war. So every time I hear that, it's, oh, I've been there. It's so gorgeous. I'm like, not for my people. Do you get what I'm saying? I want to say that shit, but I'm like, yeah, it's gorgeous. In certain parts of the island, it's gorgeous. The cis people do the equivalent of asking people about their genitalia in the same way. It's, okay. I think that both are bad, but like also like, why do you need to know about somebody's genitalia?
1: Yep. Good point. Um, I'm going to ask you, the number of things you do is really quite impressive. You're a writer, actor, filmmaker, solo shows, etc. Are you still going out and doing the stand-up comedy thing? Or has that taken a backseat to trying to create the one-person show and so on?
0: Yeah, I think what it is that stand-up to me is so fun and so lovely. But I'm a bit spoiled. I enjoy shows where it's I know that people are either coming for me or they're coming for a good cause or it's queer people or it's just a fun night. Do you get what I'm saying? I like doing that kind of thing rather than just going up at a spot where people may not be as friendly or as receiving of the material. So in that way, like I enjoy the art form of stand-up and solo-based theater probably more than anything else that I do but it has to be within a certain context and yet there's nothing like going into a room full of strangers and making them laugh so it's like both it's but I'll have more capacity and more like energy for the first rather than the latter like the latter gets put to the back burner a little bit more
1: Talk to me a little bit about some of the solo performers who inspire you. I was thinking when I saw some clips of you doing Amashak, I was thinking about early Whoopi Goldberg, you know? How she used to personify three or four characters in her hour-long show and just how powerful and real she made them. Mm-hmm.
0: Whoopi is definitely somebody I look to. I grew up watching John Leguizamo. is like one of my favorites. Whoopi, John, and... Who else? Like I I also one of the first solo shows I had ever seen live was Danny Hawkes show. And and then Anna DeVere Smith's stuff as well. I really enjoyed as well. Those is Sarah Jones, I loved her too, but I think the people that I grew up watching and going, Wow, was Whoopi and John. And then as I started doing my solo career, then it was like people who were just a little bit older to me who had been doing it in the New York scene because by that time I had moved to New York.
1: Right, and New York has that kind of illustrious solo performance tradition with Eric Bogosian and Karen Finley, even Andy Kaufman. It's such a great medium with the potential to go so deep. When you do your hour-long show, what questions do you want the audience to consider?
0: I want people to... Hold in their heart, rather, that like their compassion quoted to have risen. You know what I'm saying? And not just for queer and trans people, but for everybody, for themselves. You know what I'm saying? And I want people to walk away on top of having that compassion and a greater understanding for queer people in general, that I want them to look at their own journeys. Because I think that sometimes when we think, when cis people, when white people see people of color or queer people's stories, there's a tendency to be like, that's them, not me. But the truth is, if if everybody was like, oh, that's me too, then we get to go deeper as individuals into our own story and kind of pick it apart. Again, our compassion quota raises, right? Is it quota? Our ability to have compassion. Raises because I feel, and let me try and gather these words, that a lot of the ignorance and the bigotry out there is accidental. I'm not saying some of it is not purposeful, but a lot of it is accidental. Sometimes when you look at your own shit and you have compassion for your own shit, then you're like, oh, who am I to judge any fucking body? I have my own shit to worry about. I have my own story to try and work through and get better as a human.
1: When you write your shows, do you imagine writing for a specific audience?
0: I think that I have a couple of people in mind when I write. And the first thing is that outside of me desiring to share my story, like with if I have a specific lens and I know, because I've been doing this for however long, I know how to tell the story and I know what parts of my story are going to resonate. So let's just say I know the, the jumping off point. But then after that, it's, I am writing for queer, trans, people of color. That first and foremost, QT BIPOC, like people of color who are also queer and trans. And then it is the ripple effect. Okay. And then it's like folks of color. And then it's, it just keeps going. It just keeps going. And, and it's because I in between the stories that I want to tell I am giving points of reflection so what happened why it happened and how I perceived it then and how I perceive it now right and so if somebody's somebody who is similar to me in identity is watching it they're going to be like oh actually I understand this because this is also happening to me oh and this is how he dealt with it okay this is how like sometimes it's through, watching somebody tell their story is, and we learned the lessons for ourselves. Like we didn't have to do necessarily the exact work, but we can see where the work begins through somebody else's story so that we can begin to go deeper. So that's who I'm writing for is my community. But I have my mentors, my art artists, mentors, and elders have always been like, your story is only as good as the details you provide. So I have to really go there like emotionally imagery so that everything that i'm saying is not going to feel foreign to somebody who doesn't come from the same experience to me as me they're going to be like oh yeah like i saw myself in your story
1: i love that your story is only as good as the details you provide i, I totally agree and from what i've seen of your work uh, you're really amazing at that so i'm really excited for to tea or not to tea tell me this what do you see yourself doing in the entertainment industry over the next five years?
0: I want to tour comedy and solo shows and all of that. I want to do that. And I want to like, sometimes I think, do I want a show that's centered around me? Only if it's like the best shit ever. You know what I'm saying? Because I've been working on different projects, mostly in like short digital series types of formats. But I enjoy doing that shit. It's so fun. It's short, it's fun, it's good, and it's exactly me. It's something that I'm aligned with. I would want that same flavor if there was a series based off. Me. But more than anything, I enjoy like playing I I love playing weird characters. I love playing like dumb, hijinxy, stupid type of <laughs> humor something not that I'm trying to laud a Monty, Monty Python but do you know what I'm saying I like that kind of oddball, like weird jinksy types of comedy and I it's what I want to do outside of those kinds of roles it's like I said it's just mostly me being able to perform my work you know
1: all right let's do a little speed round talk to me about hip-hop Why was it important to you when you were growing up and forming your identity?
0: I loved hip hop that I grew up with. You know what I'm saying? I like some of it now too, but I'm more like R&B right now. (laughs) But growing up, I I loved hip hop so much and I would, you know, write rhymes and, you know, kick it with my friends. And in college, I was a performance poet and which was basically like rhyming without beats for me. You know what I'm saying? And I I felt like hip-hop was where I got my first dose of what it meant to be a feminist, what it meant to be a social justice aligned artist. The power of your art can look fly and like fresh and can move people to action and move people on the dance floor. So that's what hip-hop is to me. I am so grateful that I was metaphysically schooled by this genre of music and by these incredible MCs that taught me all of these profound lessons by just me being a huge hip hop head. And I am also like, I think that immigrant communities take, because the world, the US is so Black and white, literally, like white peoples and Black folks, that for me, As a queer person, it was more important to, not important is not the right word. As a person of color, it was more aligned for me to not be aligned with whiteness, is what I'm trying to say. And and it was because I grew up in a very racist town. And yet, some people in my community align themselves with whiteness. So it, it just depends. Like, it's okay, how deep is your shit and how deep are you thinking that you want to just be accepted so you're going to lean to whiteness do you know what I'm saying and for me it was like there was such this like push against it and I think it was also because there were my father didn't shy away from political conversations when I was younger I know this is supposed to be a speed round but I like I'm, I'm politicized as a young kid and so to me the last thing if I'm hearing about my father talk about neo-nazis the kkk What's going on in his workplace with where people? Do you know what I'm saying? I'm just gonna be like, so hip hop was like mine. You know what I'm saying? It was like my way of just finding a place in this world. You know, and I and, and a lot of the people that I grew up with, if there was only like a, a handful of us folks of color, we did come together, and it was through our music too, through through our appreciation for the music like hip hop, R and B, like freestyle, whatever.
1: What's something that you do for self-care when the world is coming down on you? Something that keeps you sane?
0: Yeah, I like to pray and I like to burn incense. Uh, I have like really amazing incense. And then I like to listen to spiritual music. So that can be like from any culture, any religion. But I feel like there's something when it's divinely inspired, it doesn't matter. Like you feel it. So I love that that. I think that my community is like where I feel like recharged and re-energized and just can relax. So like some of like my best friends are like the best people on this planet to me. And so just being with them is a recharge. And it's I think we need people. We always needed people. But now more than ever, it's almost like I'm thirsty.
1: What's your favorite part of L.A. right now? What neighborhood intrigues you?
0: It's really deep. Because I've been spending a lot more time there and also I'm rehearsing there, I have grown, like I used to hate going to downtown. It's just a shitty, dirty place. And it's so rife with the injustices. Do you get what I'm saying? Like you got corporations and you got homeless folks, you know what I'm saying? Or houseless folks, sorry. And I feel like now I'm just kind of, oh, like when you really embrace downtown for what it is, you could just go, okay, yeah, like, then you instead of being like, oh, my God, this is what's fucked up in this world. It's okay. This is what's fucked up in this world. And yet there's so much beauty here, too. You know what I'm saying?
1: What would you say is your biggest gift as a comic or a performer?
0: I would say as a comic, I love making people laugh. And it comes from the root of I love taking care of people. And I know that sometimes that might be like not so great because then you become a people pleaser and whatever. But I really do. I love knowing that people come to see me because they know they're going to have a good time.
1: If you weren't a performer, what would you be?
0: That is such a good question. And I always thought that I would want to go and like just drive people. I love driving. So I thought, oh, I'd be a cabbie. I think that my my existence as an artist is so, there's like tentacles, like there's the social justice stuff, there's the work and collaborations with organizations and nonprofits, there's writing, there's acting, there's there's so many things that I feel like really fulfilled just saying that I'm an artist. And then to be like, oh, if you weren't an artist, I'd be like, could I just do one thing? I'm really good at organizing people's homes. You get what I'm saying? Like very like, <laughs> like A type shit. But then I'm also like, oh yeah, you know, I would like to just drive people around, talk to people, hang out, you know?
1: What's your secret superpower? Like what's something that you're really good at that not too many people know about?
0: Yeah, I think it is this organizing skill that I have. I help so many artists organize their lives. And it's like the stealthy thing, like people, I'm like, some people are like, yeah, and then I had this and I'm like, did you think about this? And did you think, and then they're like, no. And I go, oh, look at my system. And then, and I'm like, and then it's almost like therapy because I'm like, but you do this because of this and think about this and I'm like, oh, so it's just an extension of connecting with people. But I am so anally clean, do you know what I'm saying? That, that my system works for my brain because I can't. My brain (laughs) is that I found something that worked for me. And now I want if people are like, hey, what do you do? I'm like, let me tell you. But it's not like I advertise it. Do you know what I'm saying?
1: What's something that you're really basic at, you know, that you're mediocre at, but you're okay with?
0: Oh, that is a really great question. I think playing the piano. Uh, like any, I feel like I'm mediocre at so much, but like I might just do it in a way that it like, gets me there. Yeah, I'm horrible at promoting my own stuff, but I am mediocre at playing these instruments that I use, that I auditioned to get into UCLA with. You get what I'm saying? So that, that is, will I ever be good at that stuff? No. Am I okay with that? Absolutely.
1: What did you end up studying at UCLA?
0: Ethnomusicology.
1: Oh, the coolest major ever.
0: But it's so anthropological and you have to do a lot of writing. So there was was so much stuff musically that, because I thought I was going to be a producer, and I went after that to do audio engineering school. But all those years, you think that you're going to, like, I thought I was going to be a producer. And when I came out, I went to New York and I was like, I'm going to make money. And I was already making money at performing. So I was like, well, I'll just do this until I can figure out this music
1: this is probably more complicated than we have time to get into, but is there a way that ethnomusicology is kind of othering, as in centered around a kind of white normative consciousness?
0: It was, but now there's, in the same way, it's what are you going in as an observer and what what happens when you come in as an observer and you don't really know and you're not sitting with and you're not understanding. Because ethnomusicology is not just about the music, it's about how the music plays a role in the context of the culture and the rituals and the performance and the dance, because it's all related. And so any culture, if a, if a white person, is, usually the scholars were white, they came in and they would sit and watch people and they'd be pontificating. And sometimes folks would be like, actually, it's not that deep. I don't know why you're breaking it down like this. This is a spiritual thing. And so people miss the thing altogether. However, I feel like more and more people are really trying to hit what is authentic. I know, like, authentic is like a bad word in academia, but people are trying to be more conscious in how they approach studying people. Yeah.
1: So, Dee, tell us about To Tea or Not To Tea. How can we find tickets for it and go see you?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. My show, Titi or Not Titi, is going up at the Kirk Douglas Theater in Los Angeles. It's actually in Culver City. And CTG, the Center Theater Group, is putting it on. And they are in charge of the Amundsen and the Taper and the Kirk Douglas. is their smaller theater, about 300 seats. But it is a gorgeous theater. And I have had that theater on my bucket list since I was younger. So I'm so very excited. You can go to ctg.org, uh, I think it is, and get tickets and we're going to have the best time that the show is about an hour and 10 or 12 minutes, no intermission. And you're going to, you're just going to come in, have a right. I'm going to take care of you and we're going to have a good time.
1: And what about you? How can we stay connected with you?
0: Yes. My handle for everything is including my website is D D L O C O K I D And for my website, it's DlocalKid.com. And then all my handles like Instagram, Facebook, this and other is all under D-L-O-C-O-K-I-D.
1: It has been so lovely to talk to you. Really been like the highlight of my week. Honestly, I appreciate you educating me and yeah, just really appreciate the way you show up. Thank you so much, Sam. It was so
0: fun to talk to you and thank you for the good work you're doing in this world as well.
1: Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's episode was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our music is by Nico Holloman. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. If you're enjoying the show, please support us by sharing on social media or by going to your favorite podcast player and leaving a review. It really does help. Until next time, be well.